All right. Well, welcome to Music Biz 101 and More live here at William Patterson University. This is the first time we've ever done a show live in front of a studio audience. So say hello, everybody. 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 That was very good. I'm your professor, David Kirk Philp, with your esteemed professor, Dr. Esteban. Yes, I'm here again. Yes, Dr. Esteban Marconi, who is right. still here. I am now Jim Carrey's straight man. That's right. That has nothing to do with you. No, but, but okay. you look very good tonight. Well, thank you. Yes, On we appreciate radio. you here. So we are trying to make the music be- biz better, and this is Music Biz 101 and More Live, and this is brought to us tonight by MIO, William Patterson's music and, enter- music and Entertainment Organization, student-run organization. Let's give them a hand because they put this whole thing together tonight. Big thanks to the board, uh, Joelle, Grace, Fatima, Bianca. There we go. Thank you, Bianca. So Bianca Russo. So Bianca Russo, Jess Frank, who are our uh, weekly producers of the Music Biz 101 and More radio show, which is every Wednesday night, 8 p.m. on Brave New Radio, 88.7 WPSC. We would like to introduce to you our awesome panel of panelists. But they already met them. But the people on the radio have no idea who they're listening ah, to. The radio. <laughs> so I'd like to continue. So tonight's guest, we're going to start uh, with the guy with the smug little sweatshirt and uh, checkered black and white. The other, you got a nice sweater, Josh. It's the sweatshirt, the hoodie going on. His name is Paul Sinclair. Give Paul Sinclair a hand. Hi. <laughs> Paul Sinclair, the head of digital strategy, marketing, e-commerce, and product development at Atlantic Records. He was also our 2014-2015 executive in residence for the William Patterson Music Management Program. One more hand for Paul Sinclair. (laughs) To your left, Paul's right, we have Josh Bernstein. Josh Bernstein! Josh is the director of sales and business development for the Alternative Press magazine. He is also the producer of the Alternative Press Music Awards. Did I say that right, Josh? Nailed it. I nailed it. I nailed it for Josh Bernstein. One more hand for Josh. Woo! Now, if you put your eyes back on Paul Sinclair and look to your right, his left, we have this dude over here. He has won two Grammy Awards. He's written a number of chart-topping. Have you had chart-topping hits? I think so. (laughs) He's had chart-topping hits. He has semi-long hair, Naturally green, we would like to introduce a William Patterson alum. His name is Rob Fusari. Rob Fusari. Songwriter, producer, you've also created uh, karaoke. You've done a lot of things that we'll uh, possibly get into. And Paul, Paul, Josh, uh, all five of these people have been on our radio show in the past, including Rob. Now, look at Paul, look at Rob, look back at Josh, look back at Rob, then look over to our female panelist tonight. Her name is Joanne Kelsey, and, right? Yeah. For a second, I thought I had your name wrong. That's because it was different when I went okay. to school here. Her, yeah. She used to be Joanne Shenton. <laughs> she got married, followed the traditional, oh, I'll take his name. So now her name <laughs> is Joanne Kelsey. Joanne Kelsey, who is now the senior, starting Monday, the senior director of royalties for Memory Lane Group, and she is also a William Patterson University music management grad. Joanne Kelsey, everybody, say hello. <laughs> All right. I'm thinking you should probably stand for our final guest. Is that it? Oh, No, there's more. one more. There's a very... Please stand and rise for our national business, music business lawyer of the year. His name is Carl Guthrie. Give Carl a big hand. Carl Guthrie. That is Carl Guthrie Esquire to you and I. He is a music business attorney, the Carl Guthrie Law Firm. Any of you, please sit down. Sit and he is also a William Patterson Music Management faculty member. We want to remind everybody to go to musicbiz101wp.com for a weekly newsletter. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at musicbiz101wp. And, of course, our podcast is available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iTunes. We would now like to begin the questioning with Dr. Esteban Marconi. Would you give him a hand? Make him feel good. Dr. Steve Marconi, make him feel good. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to open it up actually for everyone to sort of give a comment. And the question that I have is, what was the most intriguing question that you received in the last hour at our panel, uh, at our um, career roundtables? You can start with Josh. 
Um, I think I, I, the, one, the one I like the most, someone just asked me, like, you know, which, you know, of all the uh, bands I got to work with, which was like kind of the most, you know, kind of what was the most fun experience for me, um, you know, kind of as a fan. Um, and it, it caused me to pause and think about it, but there was, you know, wonderfully a lot of good memories. So uh, I like that one in particular. Sorry, wasn't exciting, but <laughs> I like that one. It was exciting to you, Josh. It, was exciting and that's to me. All it meant a lot to me, whoever asked that. Thank you. Um, so I had two. Uh, one was, can I send you my demo mixtape uh, music SoundCloud links? Um, the other, um, the other was, someone asked me. They said, "Hey, I work a lot. I go to school full time. I don't have any time to um, to intern, and you can't get in the music industry without interning." And then they took me through all the things they do, and it was Chris. It was sort of a good jumping point to explain all the things that they have in their life going on that would actually make them an, an amazing candidate if they just figure out how to turn that into a story and a resume and um, an interview. So um, it set the tone for the entire conversation because they thought that they had nothing that would get them an internship or a job, and the reality of it was it was everything that would get them an internship or a job. Mm -hmm. Rob. Um, the question that I got asked a lot tonight is always, it, it kind of is the same question that I actually learned from when I think about it, because I have to think about it all over again, and that's, you know, where the inspiration comes from when you're writing and producing. And, you know, as I'm, as I'm answering the question, I'm actually kind of learning from the question in the sense of, it, it actually comes from like, everyone in here. It, it's... It's a, it's a relearning of how to think and, and where to draw from. And, you know, the answer is, as I said to a lot of the groups, it's, it's right there in front of you. And it's just learning how to draw from people themselves. Everyone in here has a story. Everyone in here has something to say or a, a way of saying it, an interesting way of saying it, potentially. Um, and the inspiration is just, it's all around me. And, and I always, I like the question because it, it, it does the same thing for me as it's doing for the person who I'm answering to. Hmm. Um, the question that I got, it wasn't really the most intriguing question, but I think it was the smartest question was um, how to get your foot in the door. And it's by going to events like these was my answer. Um, and like the when he spoke about the startup event, uh, networking is very important. And going, the more practice that you get, the better you get at it, and uh, the more confident you get. I was asked a very interesting question, uh, which at first blush, blush would be obvious. Uh, as an entertainment attorney, do you focus on just representing the artist, or do you consider trying to uh, work in a way or represent and negotiate in a way that creates uh, a win-win situation for the artist and the record company or the company that they're dealing with, that's a publisher or what have you. And uh, if you think about it, all attorneys work for their client uh, in the first instance. But in the entertainment field, it is, it is important to understand that we're engaging in cooperative ventures or undertakings, and it's important to create and I tell students often, you want to create a win-win situation so that both parties are motivated to do their best to achieve the ultimate objectives of both parties, mm -hmm. uh, to have the success and so forth. And I've seen situations where uh, that fact is lost sight of, that you're trying to engage in something which is cooperative and you need both parties to work and give their best to achieve the desired result. Uh, where, that, where that goal is lost, very often uh, the results are compromised or you don't achieve what you would otherwise possibly achieve. Um, so when you get into contracts, you're talking about ventures which go on for a period of time, and we need um, individuals to be motivated to do their best. So in negotiating contracts, it's just not a matter of looking at uh, provisions which uh, by, by themselves look like it, it's easy to just decide that we need to go this way or that way. You've got to look deeper into it and think about what would motivate both the company and be fair to the artist as well. 
um, to achieve the ultimate result. And nine times out of ten, you, you create a better long-term relationship if you keep that in mind. Create mm -hmm. a win. We'll look for a win-win, not a, not a knockdown, dragged-out situation where one side wins, the other side is really quite turned off and probably won't do very well to, to achieve the result, result that you want. Okay? Mm -hmm. All right, good. I want to move to uh, streaming. And uh, Apple came out last week and said uh, they were second in terms of paid subscriptions. They had 6.3 million, even though Spotify had 20 million paid subscribers. Now, we think that Apple, that might be inflated because there might be people that don't even know they bought a subscription because of the way Apple snuck that in. Do you think paid subscriptions is the future? Uh, paid subscription streaming? And do, uh, maybe this would be for Carl as well, and do artists in general get paid more, or Joanne would know too, get paid more when uh, a song is on paid streaming versus ad supported streaming? Um, I can answer that. So, um, yes, I think that there's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. This is the future of how everybody's going to be listening to music. Uh, and I do have to say that the, the publishers are, are, and the record companies are not so happy about that, but we're trying to find creative ways to deal with it. Um, as far as whether the artist or the songwriter is making more money, the, the, the artist is. Um, the songwriters make nothing. Um, and if whether it's from ad-supported or was it subscription-based, um, yeah, there's different models um, for the royalties, and uh, the ad-based model is a, a smaller royalty than the subscription-based model. Uh, but when you're listening to any of those services, you're contributing more money as opposed to if you're listening to something like Pandora. Um, and if you're listening to iTunes, you're actually contributing more than if you're listening to Spotify. But uh, I, I personally like the user experience of Spotify better than iTunes. So I can't really, <laughs> that's just a personal thing. Well, how about, how about Rob? If, could you jump in? Because you're somebody who had hit songs during the CD era. And now there are you know, fewer CDs sold, obviously. Um, and you're seen as a songwriter, your statements come in. Um, are yeah. they 50 pages long anymore? Or are they? Oh, no. Yeah. No, it's, it's pretty horrific. Um, and uh, like you said, with the, in terms of the songwriting royalty, um, it's, it's a catch-22, though, because it, the experience has also opened up a lot of doors um, for the artist um, and songs that would have never gotten or seen the light of day you know, in, in this realm have. You know, you, you could take an example of if you like this artist, check out this artist, um, which happens and you see a lot in, in the streaming world. It gives you options and it presents uh, other artists to you that you would never know of prior. But it, it, it has not caught up with the, the business model of how especially you know, publishing and a songwriter should be paid. So I think it's got a long way to, to come in that regard. I've seen some things that are pretty interesting in contracts where companies uh, attempt to equate uh, streams to albums in the traditional sense. And uh, it seems that companies think that uh, it's appropriate to, to deem a thousand streams, um, subscriber streams, uh, equal to an album where it takes 5,000 ad-funded streams to equal an album so that an artist that wants to achieve uh, certain plateaus in terms of royalty or income increments would need to, uh, as I said, with respect to the, the ad-funded streams, achieve five times more streams than they would if they were a subscriber. So obviously the subscriber streams are more valuable. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing that I've noticed is, quite frankly, is there, there are at least uh, one, possibly two generations of, of uh, consumers 
that believe music should be free. They just do. And uh, we came up, in my generation, we always went into music stores and uh, browsed through uh, the, the, the vinyl and uh, CDs and uh, looking at the liner notes, looking at the pictures. We also always knew that you had to pay for it and were willing to do so, but we've long since passed that. We've reached the point where there are uh, many who feel it should be free. As a matter of fact, one student recently told me that um, I do a lot of streaming, but I do it in an interesting way. I I stream to to determine what I like, and then if I really like it, I'll download. Uh, and another one said, well, I'll, I just stream exclusively, but I, I just use the trial periods to scream, stream for free, and then I back out in, in time and uh, cut off my credit card <laughs> uh, so I don't get charged. So students are pretty interesting and uh, innovative in how they use this process. <laughs> Does the, uh, if we talk, go away from songwriter but stay on streaming, is the artist pays, gets paid from the record company, and does the artist get paid on a royalty rate that is similar to the old royalty rates, which was 8, 9, 10, 11% of, of retail, or, or is there another arrangement that they make, or is, it in, or is it in the 360 deal? I think it's probably for a call more than anyone. It's, 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 it's a component of the royalty structure. But usually it's going to be a percentage of uh, what the company receives. I've seen 15%. 15. Uh, is common, commonly. A mm-hmm. But not, hot, not like 20, 25, or 30, or anything like well, that. Well, of course, once again, leveraging clout helps. Oh, yeah. I yes, realize but, that. But, um, for a new artist. For the most part, 15 <coughs> is the, 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 the area that we can look at mm-hmm. to be realistic for new artists. All right. Paul, you want to what, chime in at all? No. Okay. Um, no, I, I think uh, I was actually just sitting here as a person who loves music, but also works for the, you know, the major labels. Just sitting here thinking, we we often sort of debate internally, right? Like, w- what's going to happen with royalty rates around streaming as the world keeps changing? Um, and then we also, you said that, um, you know, the labels and publishers don't like streaming, which I think it's largely true from a bean counting perspective, right? But then on the other hand, I think most of us are, and obviously I come from digital, so I think streaming's great, except for the fact that people like Rob don't get paid nearly enough. But I don't think people like Rob got paid enough in 1984 either. I think record labels and publishers exist to extract as much money as they can, and that's always a natural bump up against the artists. But then back to what Carl said, like ultimately, I think good record labels are getting smarter and and are coming to realize, which is where the whole 360 thing popped up, um, the, the good part of it, not the, the bad part of what 360 became. But I think um, good labels, like any other good company, come to realize that like everybody's got to win to some degree. If artists aren't um, making enough money, they will find other ways to spend their time. So I think good labels are starting to share more. I don't know if that means um, royalties are going to go up or not. I think you're right in terms of where they are right now. Um, but I, there was a time not five years ago when there was sort of a lot of noise around like labels and publishers should share more like 50%. I don't think we'll ever get there. But I do think that over time the numbers are going to go up. I also think that the checks won't be so appalling when we get to... 50, 60, 70, right? The, the math has always been streaming will only work when we get to fill-in-the-blank number. And that number was always somewhere around 30, 40, 50, 60 million paying subscribers. I think the num- the working number in the world is like 50 million or so. So in the next two years, we should see if this thing's going to pan out or not. It Spotify's at 30 million now, so we're and they're it's growing. The, and then the, the Apple number, although six I think Marconi's right, number. I think that number is probably highly inflated. But I think over the next eighteen months, we'll see if the royalty checks. There's also the other funky thing in the world is that royalty statements get paid really late, and there's always like a six month lag. So the checks that you're seeing are tied to money that was earned 200 years ago, back when Spotify had 11 <laughs> users, months. and I was one of them. <laughs> right? So months. I think that it's going to take a while for the whole machine to catch up. 
Um, right. But I also don't think streaming's going to go the way of CDs anytime in, in any near future, even if the 10 buck a month thing isn't where we land. How many in the room are paid subscribers? About half. Well, for those listening, that's a lot. About half. Very good. That does seem more than half to me. Uh, now, sp speaking of this question for Josh Bernstein over there, because Josh um, is involved with uh, All Press Magazine and also the uh, All Press Music Awards, knowing that we can go to Spotify right now and see how many times Adele's new song, Hello, has streamed already. Or a trillion, it, probably. It's a trillion six, she actually. Broke, she broke I the think. internet. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, or even smaller bands, you know, we we could tell if if a band is under, I think, uh, was it for Spotify under three thousand? Oh, under one thousand, you get the yeah. little you get the carrot. Little carrot there, yeah. Okay. If you want to check out my old band, it's Carrot Carrot Central. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Knowing that when you are choosing bands, either for the Alternative Press Music Awards sure. or when uh, editorial is is looking, who are we going to feature or well, do this, a write up? In the, are you looking at things like that? This came up recently. We had we had a. We had Rob Zombie on our show last year and um, convinced him to play uh, my favorite White Zombie song, Thunder Kiss 65, uh, at the show. And I had a, a younger staffer say, no, no, that's not his most famous song on Spotify. This song's number one. I said, well, I, I was alive when the song came out. And this, trust me, this one was bigger. <laughs> and uh, and they was like, no, but on Spotify. And I was like, I, I appreciate that this company that was created like in Sweden somewhere three years ago was saying that's the number one. But so we actually came up with a formula that we were kind of basically using YouTube views mixed with Spotify, mixed with a couple other factors of where we kind of arrived on a band sales. And we actually we like we have like regular calls with Hot Topic based on merch sales. Uh, we look at we look at AG and Live Nation's ticket sales to kind of really get a full scope of because there's bands that kill it on streaming that couldn't sell a live ticket. You know, or sell a lot of merch, and I mean, you look at a lot of the bands in Coachella; they're very popular, very big, but you, no one has a shirt by any of those bands. So it's it's interesting to kind of see where it's at. Um, you know, with the, with the streaming thing, for our for our uh, you know fan base or readers, uh, I think uh, in many ways sparked what is the vinyl uh, craze as well, because there's nothing tangible there. You don't ever really own it. What can you do with it? You know, and, and I know you know us older folks have that that uh, sense of discovery, like you said, of going th going to the record bins and the smell and touching all these things, and um, that uh, is kind of missing. And um, you know, working in a print magazine, it's a very similar thing. What is this tangible thing you could he you know keep and hold? Um, and I think that's why. Um, you see the, um, the vinyl being, you know, I think 20% of our readers or 25% of our readers are, are buying vinyl regularly, uh, buying their releases. The other interesting thing we saw this year is with this band, All Time Low, that we, we cover a lot, um, kind of encouraging their fans. They're going to stream anyway, but they were just encouraging. The, the fan base was like, I bought six CDs. I bought eight. I love the band so much, I'm going to support them. I'm going to buy eight CDs, you know, and to the point where got them into a, uh, a number one spot, like a legit number one spot. Um, for a band that I think a lot of people may be in the outside of our world never even heard of. Um, and that's, that's a kind of a phenomenon of our world where you have um, these, these um, very supportive fan bases that will go out of their way to support a band and buy extra copies of the record to help the band out. What do you think those bands are doing to get that kind of fan base? Because anybody in this room would die, would kill for that. Not, oh, yeah. Not literally kill, unless it's like a bug and nobody cares. No, but but um, how, what, are, what are they doing to, to get that? Um, we work with this other band, uh, and it's and it's it's one of uh, Paul's bands, Twenty One Hundred Pilots, um, who woo, <laughs> car radio. It's funny. That's the band that I would have pointed to right? related to this. Yeah, we got signed. We all got signed to a record deal. We all have a new record coming out. That is the way they speak about it, and it's like, wow, that's that's smart. We're all headlining this show together, and it's a very inclusive thing. It's not our band; it's your band. Um, and, and that kind of mentality, I think, really resonates with that. I mean, those, those fans, we had them, uh, our award show is only two years old. Um, they played last year and were the baby band, and now then they play the MTV Awards, and, you know, they will be an arena band. They will be an arena band next summer. Like, we're in a world that is not making a lot of arena bands. That's why we're still, like, seeing Springsteen and the Eagles and the Stones, and, you know, um, it's, it's the same rotating cast of 15 bands that could still play arenas or stadiums. Um, and, and they're going to be there. So uh, I think it's, it's being as inclusive as possible where the fans feel like they're, they're, they're part of the action too. And that, that goes a long way. 
And it never hurts with all-time lower tournament piles that you're like extremely attractive young men. <laughs> Put that out there. Dr. Marconi, do you have anything to add? He's Googling photos of them right now. <laughs> oh, look at that one. You can He's buy tall. hats on their website. All right. Why don't you ask him that one? Which one? Okay. Um, the, the Paul question or the Josh question? Oh, okay. So, okay. Paul Sinclair, do you see an increase in interest from indie artists to have major label support without actually signing to labels like the, Mac the Macklemore and Lewis model, which uh, in case everybody isn't completely aware, they're independent in that um, they created their own fan base in the Seattle area, uh, the upper northwest. Then they used... Um, Warner's ADA label for promotion, et cetera. Do you see that model growing even further, especially from where you sit? So I think what we're seeing is label. some labels are more open to experimenting than they might have been years ago, right? Because of Macklemore and Lewis? Um, maybe, or also just because of the craziness of the world, right? The, the revenues are down and A&R people are way more open and people are younger and people aren't from the... Bruce Springsteen days, and they're open to like work with artists in lots of different ways, right? We saw this big shift from the way it used to be into 360, where labels were going to participate in everything. But I think from those two extremes, we then saw a bunch of people saying, like, there's probably a lot of ways we can do this. So we have, so I think we're seeing experimentation more. That's one example where an artist has a huge fan base and they're like, I'll do all the marketing myself. I need a promo staff to help me. Yeah, I could go hire an indie, but I'd rather use a, a label that's got a bigger team. Um, but then we have artists that are like, hey, I want to do a couple of tracks and I want to try out a track relationship, especially in the dance space. And we're seeing, right, where they're like, I'm going to make some tracks and then I don't know what I'm going to do next. So I don't want to sign a big long deal. And then we're seeing artists where instead of doing deals around albums, they're saying, I don't know if I want to make albums. I want to make lots of songs. So we'll, we'll call them collections of songs. So I think we're just seeing A&R people trying to experiment more as the market keeps shifting. Um, and some of that is I need some services, but I don't need them all. But some of them are like, I want to experiment differently with music. And, and working with Julie Greenwald, who's the president of the label, she's very supportive of all this experimentation because she's understanding that it's kind of the Wild West right now. Yeah, but and I also think that... Um, so, so the real deal is we don't know, right? There's not... I think we're... We are, and, and again, I think a bunch of labels are going through this. We're trying to be far more open to how an artist wants to work with a label. Um, and then you just structure the deal around that as long as it makes sense, right? So I just think... Part of it is we, we don't really know where the next five years are going to go, right, until streaming catches up. But I also think that artists can do some of this stuff themselves if they want to. And so I've had lots of people over the years say, you know, I can put out my record on TuneCore and I can do the marketing and I can use social and whatever. Say, cool, do that. Like, that's good. You can do it on your own, do it on your own. If you can do parts of it on your own but you don't want to do other parts of it on your own, maybe there's something we can do together. Or I want to be all in, in full, full boat because I want the label to be behind me 100% and I want the deal to be fair and equitable and blah, blah, blah. Well, that's a good relationship too. Like they're, they're all different versions of it. depends on who the artist is and how much they want to do themselves. Macklemore and Ryan Lewis love DIYing it. We have a couple artists like that where they're doing most of the work. And then there are artists where they're like, I, I, I just want to make music. Like I just, All I want to do is make music. We have about 15 minutes left. Actually, we, have, we started late, so we have like half an hour left. So, Carl, you're going to get to Time that late. Time waits for no man. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I have a question for Joanne, because I heard her use the magic word sync, synchronization uh, at her table earlier. Can you talk from the publishing end about how, so since streaming revenue, because of streaming taking over you know, for a lot of the large percentages, that revenue has gone down. What you have done in your career with uh, sync licensing in order to still bring in additional revenue from a publishing side for songwriters? Sure. So um, I, don't, I don't do the sync licensing, but uh, I, I just take the checks. But uh, so we have a sync department that really uh, pitches heavily uh, the so our songwriter's songs to uh, the advertisements and um, television shows uh, and promos 
things like that. Uh, and we also created a, uh, as a publishing company, a, a yearly, and now it's even more often, sync camp where our writers uh, go into one location and write songs to what's called a brief where we get um, supervisors that come in, music supervisors, and uh, ask the songwriters to write specifically a song to a specific scenario. And it's very a very concentrated um, event, and we get a lot of placements out of it. Uh, and then also throughout the year, uh, our sync team will get briefs from the supervisors and mail them out to email them to the the writers. And sometimes the writers will write write to brief as well. Um, they'll get they'll they'll get the brief in the morning and they'll spend all day in the studio and write to that brief. Other times, you know, they'll just like go through their catalog and say, hey, I think this one will be good. And then the, the uh, sync person will go ahead and pitch to the supervisor that song. Now, knowing that, follow-up would go for Rob Fusari, the songwriter. Have you ever written a song, especially, let's say, in the last five, six years, where you're thinking as you're writing or as it's coming out, this would be the perfect song for X brand? Or as the purity of the songwriter, are you, do you not even allow that to seep in? No, um, it, it doesn't work um, in my world. Um, it's two different mindsets, and, and there are songwriters that can do that. And it's almost, it almost kind of goes along the lines of somebody who writes a jingle um, for a commercial. It's a, it's, a different, it's a different realm. It's a different artistry onto its, on its, uh, onto its own. Any sync that I have gotten has just happened because the song had come out previously and you know someone wanted to, to align it with their product um, or their or their movement. Um, so in it's very interesting and, and I could certainly admire and respect the the writer who could fall in line with that kind of a specific element and that kind of a specific art because that is an art as well. Um, which is, is, is not so much from the world that I know, um, but it is something that is, um, it's very interesting how, how it comes together and how you see it, it working when it does work. But it, for me, when, I, when I've tried to do that, um, it's just, it's a mess. It just doesn't, it doesn't ever align. Um, we're going to ask one more question and uh, as we ask and answer the question if any of you in the audience have some questions that you would like feel free to line up behind this microphone and we will call on you at the time when the, when the time is right yeah, at that perfect time which would be perfect so um, this is probably a Paul and Carl question it's about the famous 360 deal or uh, Atlanta calls it the extended rights deal and from uh, both of your perspectives, um, I, I know uh, from the label perspective, especially how Atlantic talks about the extended rights deal, it's, it's a true partnership. I know there are some artists and maybe some in the audience who still feel like it's the label sticking their hand into the pocket of the artist. So um, maybe from the Atlantic perspective, can you kind of talk a little bit about that? And then Carl, from your perspective in seeing these deals and working them from an artist's perspective, if you could answer and um, if you guys want to Indian leg wrestle after. Right. I was just thinking he's right. going to rebut me. It's like we're a debate. Um, so, uh, again, I'm only speaking for Atlantic because um, we're awesome and everybody else is. No, I'm not going to. This is being recorded, right? Um, so, so when we jumped into 360 a bunch of years ago, and by the way, it's definitely the label putting their hand in the cookie jar or whatever it is you said, right? I mean, that's the... That's the reality. Um, we basically said, hey, if we're going to do this, we need to do this well. So we went out and either built or acquired a bunch of teams. We built a merch company that's like a 40-person merch company. We built out a 100-person e-commerce and, and, and consumer marketing team. Um, we put services in place to do ticketing and VIP and, and fan club and, and, and merch. And so... Because of that, over time, and, right? And so my belief is the reason I call them extended rights is because 360 means that we have all rights. And the reality of it is like every other deal we have, sometimes we have merch deals, sometimes we have just ticketing, sometimes we do brand partnerships and sponsorships and things like that, but not other stuff. Um, depends on what happens as we're negotiating the deal, but also it depends on what the artist is 
interested in, right? Some artists are just never going to care about merch, and so merch isn't a thing worth negotiating. Um, but anyway, so um, because of that, we, we, we have the rights. We then build out teams to, to, to um, be able to deliver on the rights that we, that we hold. And then um, we also think the value in doing it is in integrating it into all the other marketing we do. So when we put out a song or we put out a video or an EP or an album, whatever it is, we're tying in the, what's the perfect time to drop the, the ticket on sale or what's the perfect way to drop the 21 Pilots bright red hat that you can buy on 21pilots.com right now. Um, so, right, so the hat is, and so by the way, this isn't like crass monetization. Dude's wearing a hat in the video. Somebody was like, hey, I bet a bunch of kids at the show would love to have that hat. Let's sell it. And so we make the hat, we sell the hat. Actually, I have one of the hats. It's he's awesome. Wearing, he's wearing it on our right? new cover. Um, so, right. So, um, anyway, if done well, it can be great. And if done poorly, it's a total right sham. Like it's like most things. If uh, if the label is truly in it, then I think it works. And if and and it's not perfect. Sometimes some artists aren't happy about it um, because they'd rather be using the brother who's the merch guy or you know whatever. Um, but ultimately, doing this for loads of artists, I think we probably are. We think we're better at it than most other companies, and we're certainly the only ones that can do. So there's the 360 part. We're the only ones that can tie the merch to the actual album coming out to the right because we have a vested interest in making sure all these things are buttoned up. That's that's what I think. That's what I think it, it can work well. Okay. I think that uh, when the 360 um, came into prominence across the board in the industry, it was frowned on by artists and artist representatives and entertainment lawyers because it, it did look like a money grab uh, without any corresponding obligation or commitment to make those other income streams valuable to the artist um, or to, to work for that which we the label would receive. So when we see a clause that says our, the company will have certain rights, but we don't see the company also assuming obligations to, to pursue opportunities and create value which would be shared. As I said, ultimately you want a win-win. So I'm, I'm pleased to hear, as, as, as it's being said now, that uh, some companies are saying, well, look, if we're going to acquire merchandising rights in the 360, uh, let's create a merchandising company and staff it and really work those areas and create value for the artists so that at the end of the day we can say we've earned a share of this and we've created uh, a new income stream for you that you probably would not have had, or at least it's, it's worth pursuing uh, cooperatively because we can share something that we've built. Um, or it's fruit from the tree that we've created. Um, the, the lousiest or probably the most unfair 360s are those where it's just uh, the company takes the rights without having any other obligation to pursue them or to, they're, just, they're just literally tied up and frozen. Uh, we're starting to move away from that. We're starting to see companies also show fl great flexibility in the way deals are structured. Uh, and It's not necessarily a 360 deal that's being done. It could be something far less. Certain areas, income streams can be excluded. If you're a film artist, a television artist, or you have a reality show or a clothing line, those areas may be excluded from the deal. Uh, so you, you can be creative in the way you negotiate and also uh, the 360 brought into view the, the notion that companies could now share in live performance income, which used to be an area that artists could know and rely upon uh, as their own, know that that was something that would be there for them at the end of the day. Um, and if they carefully budgeted, they, they could um, realize something along with the merchandising and other spinoff uh, income streams that come from that. Uh, now we will ask a record company to, if you want to share in the live performance income, uh, give more tour support or commit to tour support income or funding. So the artist can go out on tour and uh, realize uh, or increase the fan base, increase the interest in their, 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 their music, their, their merchandise and everything else that they have to offer and then the parties can share in it. Those will probably be the fairest type of deals that you'll find and one other thing that record companies are realizing is that fan club income can be substantial where there's a following. 
And so we see uh, companies looking to to share in fan club income or take control of it, actually, the whole process. And if you think about it, if an artist has uh, a million followers and they charge $20 to join a fan club, well, that's $20 million. Uh, so one day you go look at your PayPal account at zero, the next minute it's $20 million. It's probably the easiest income to, to access. And we've seen the deals now. Companies are realizing we need to get our hands on that fan club income. Uh, and take control of it. So the thing is, you want the deals to be. You want the deals to be fair. You want uh, the companies to earn their keep and uh, to to become actively involved. If they're just passively collecting, that's where we really have a problem. From from my end, I think I think um, the way we talk about it, other than my trademark, the extended rights, is. Um, <clears throat> As a partnership, right? Yes. And so it goes both ways. And if it doesn't, if, 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 if the company isn't acting as a partner, whether it's with more tour support or, I mean, we've had, honestly, we've had artists where we've worked an album for multiple years because there was just, you know, there's, we had participated in many different ways. And even if the album wasn't selling, there's lots of other ways that an artist can get big, whether it's through sync or sure. touring or, or merch or whatever. So it just creates the opportunity for the artist and aligns the artist and the and the label to keep on going, we, even if the record sales are going the wrong direction because of streaming or downloads or whatever. Again, that's all when it's done well, right? Well, not everybody does it well. It's not everybody's a partner, right? So you just got to figure out like which who's going to be your partner, and then right, and that that depends on the company and the and the artist, but it also depends on the. Um, the mix of those two, because not every company is the right mix for a certain given artist. One thing that's not worth noting in the American market, uh, for, for, for uh, an eternity, and traditionally it was considered uh, to be the domain of a record company to own the master recordings, uh, so that invariably, regardless of the company that you signed a deal with, they, the company would, at the end of the day, own your masters. That has changed. Now we see a lot of licensing deals being made where the company will license the masters for a certain period of time and then they will revert back to the artist. That's huge. Mm -hmm. So it's important to know nowadays you don't necessarily have to sign over your masters uh, in perpetuity or forever. Um, we've seen deals where the, the rights revert five to seven years. And this has always been the case overseas interestingly enough. We all usually did license deals in uh, the United Kingdom, Japan, different places, but in the United States it was always a matter of the companies owning the masters, and it's finally changing so that there is more room for create, creative uh, approaches and flexibility even when it comes to the, the more traditional aspects of the record deals as they've been done here. Does anybody want to ask a question of the panel? Feel free to come on up now. And when you ask your question, don't be state, bashful. Yes, state your name for the court, and uh, then just go for it. Hi, um, <clears throat> my name is Omar. Um, so, all right, we were just going back to the the discussion about streaming, and I know you guys mentioned an optimal number of say three hundred. Um, no, sorry, thirty to fifty million streamers. So, in a world where that number is kind of like attained by various, I guess, streaming companies. Is there a possibility or does, there, does anyone envision a point where maybe artists will make deals directly with like a Spotify or something saying, you know, assuming they got up to their 50 million, say Apple Music, is there any point where maybe an artist will go directly to an Apple Music and say, you know, I already got my buzz going through Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, all this. I just need you guys to put my music out on your stream and... You know, is that a possibility or in the foreseeable future? And I guess that's for everybody, anybody who wants to kind of chime in. I mean, so it happens already. Yeah, right? you, you too, right? I mean, that was probably the, the, the best example recently where people were forced to take the record. Um, I, I think it's a pretty much, it's an open field right now. Like, you know, like, like I said, I was, I was in a band that never made it, but I, everything's up there and I do, I, in theory, we'll get a royalty check for point zero zero. Zero uh, cents <laughs> at some point uh, in time, but um, um, if 
Spotify, Apple, you know, those companies are, could, could do what a label could do, possibly. But I think right now, I don't know, they're really built. You can see right now, if you go on Spotify, that you, you know, they have options now where you can buy merch or upcoming shows. I don't think they've really perfected that yet. Um, I mean, you it's can, not consistent. You, you can put music on through like TuneCore. You've been, people have been doing it on iTunes for years. If that's the only thing a label's doing for you, then you can use TuneCore. There's ways to do it, right? I mean, it really, it all comes down to like, there's how many songs on Spotify now? 25, 30 million, something like that. So you're one of 30 million songs on Spotify. How are you going to get people to find it? Right? And so then it becomes like, what's the other things that people are going to do to help you actually bubble through? Um, yeah. Anything else? Okay. Next question. Thank you for your question, by the way. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, my name is Rajan, and I have a question for the entire panel. Um, I want to go with, I want to major in sound engineering, but I want to know what minor or, say, concentration should I do that can, like, highlight that? Because I don't just want, like, a fallback plan. I would, uh, I would say psychology. Yeah, because um, dealing with the personalities that you're going to be dealing with <laughs> All right. That's in that world, That's right. need a lot of psychology. Well, I don't. I don't think you should look at it as, you know, the second thing of something to fall back on. You still have to follow your passion, and everyone will say on the panel, I'm sure, they look for that passion uh, in someone before they want to do business with them. So you can't be in something just because you're falling back on it. You're not going to have the passion for it. So you're better off concentrating on really what you want to do uh, and um, and just go for it. But, like, you know, knowing the business side, I mean, I just can ar- never argue not, you know, as, as being a talented artist, being, knowing the business side can never hurt you. That's not like it makes you less of an artist or less of a creative person. But if you know the business side, you can protect I went to art school, and it was like we got out of art, you know, me and my friends got out of art school, and they're like, good luck, you know, like, <laughs> None of us knew how to negotiate a contract, write an invoice, any of these obvious things that were you know, really just, you know, you should know. So, and, and as, you know, they discuss as this industry is evolving daily, you know, maybe in five years I'm not even talking about streaming anymore. It's, you know, going to some cloud in your head or I don't know. Like, it's, it, you know, knowing the business side and staying up on the, on the trends and stuff is, is valuable. So I, I would... I would you sound like your parent, like you know, get a solid education on the on the on this side. Why why you do sound engineering? But it can never hurt as you negotiate deals. I would echo those sentiments. I think that uh, um, it's important to understand that the art and business are inseparable. You can't you can't uh, separate the two at all um, in, out in the world. When you're uh, away from the world doing your thing, that's fine. But when you enter the world with your music or whatever it is you're doing, um, there's a business component that you need to be mindful of and understand. So I, I would say as young as you are and as early as it is in your career, um, look more broadly into the areas uh, that you can explore, and, and particularly including the business, the music business and the entertainment business and uh, the emerging areas, and, and you'll, you'll perhaps find your passion as... Uh, Dr. Marconi has indicated. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks for the question. We do have about 10 minutes left, so uh, we'll go to the next one. Charles. Hi, my name's Charles. Uh, This question's kind of directed at Rob. I was just curious, what do you use to produce? Do you use more like analog, digital gear? And I know like some big pop tunes, they have up to like 200 tracks on them. Like, do you find yourself using that many in your songs? Um... You know, I strive to put it this way. I strive to um, engulf the analog sound in a digital world. It's not easy, and um, it's a struggle because um, it just it doesn't. I haven't really had had the same impact of the sonics digitally as I get um, with the analog. Um, but the 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 time that it takes to record analog is just so massive. I mean, to record to tape, you know, you're not going to do that at home. You know, there's, there's a whole, it's a whole nother world onto itself, the analog recording world. But if you could find some happy medium, um, like what I'll do is um, I'll use analog mic pre's to record a vocal. 
um, I'll use as much analog in the chain getting to the digital part. So at least it gives me some of that saturation, some of that warmth. Um, I'll try to get I'll try to get the audio into some analog realm, even if it's not tape or something that's going to be very time-consuming or costly. Um, as, as much as you can get realistically of the analog and then incorporating the two worlds, because you can't, you can't compete with how, how easy and quick it is to, to, to use Pro Tools or Logic. So, you know, you can't get around that. Uh, and I've tried to make records entirely analog, and it's cost... Uh, a, a lot of money, and and then when I when I sit and I really compare the two, and I, I say to myself, was it really worth it, in a sense? So I think the hybrid is the way to go, um, and a lot of the digital plugins now that they have are pretty outstanding in terms of getting close. They're not there yet, but they're getting close. Thank you, thank you, Charles. Next question. Hey, I'm Mike Russo. I'm a student and a professional sound engineer. I know that in my experience, there's little things that I do in my job that I think a lot of the artists don't even notice or even think to ask about. Is there anything in your job that's a small detail that you think is really important? My whole job's about details. Um, it's, uh, in, this, in this day of streaming, it's all about the metadata, which is uh, you know getting every little possible bit of information into the, the systems as possible so that uh, everything will get paid properly. I would bet, Josh, when you're putting on the AP Music Awards, it's a billion details that you're working on. Yeah. Um, well, you know, this came up in some of the, the smaller groups here, obviously, you know, and I know, I know you like this expression where I was, I was saying, like, the, you know, it's a simple thing that was told to me when I started in the business was, like, just be cool, you know, be a cool hang. And it seems like a, like a weird thing to say, but, like, you know... Um, you're going to be working with these artists or labels, uh, you know, and maybe you might be seeing them more than your own family. So, um, you know, uh, it never hurts to be a decent human being. Uh, and I know it seems odd, and there's a lot of uh, interesting behavior in the music industry, um, as, as he mentioned, and psychology is, 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 is a very uh, smart uh, tool to have. Um, being, a, being a, a cool hang is, is never a bad thing. I have an interesting detail as far as contracts go. I tell students... Be very careful about three-letter words uh, in a contract. Words like all, <laughs> net, any, they can be devastating, believe it or not. So that, that's a detail. When you see a three-letter word in a contract, be very careful. Make sure you understand what's being said you know, and, and implied. One of the, uh, the details that I missed for years was um, I, I forgot that I was actually in the business of people and not music per se. Um, and I, I thought if I just did a great song and a great production, then everything else would work itself out. It wasn't the case. Um, artists are, are very sensitive. And there's a certain bedside manner and a certain way of dealing with artists that, you know, as I, you know, I joked earlier about the psychology, there's truth in it because it's actually something I wish I you know, took more time in really examining my relationship with the artist in terms of, you know, it's not, the music is one part of the, the pie that makes up, you know, this, this recording or this great artist or this great project. And it, you, if you're not looking at that side of it, it's something that could be missed easily because you think, oh, we did a great song. We had, you know, it's a, it's a good product. And then the artist won't maybe come back to work with you again, regardless if it is a great product, because that detail may have been missed. I think treating, you know, every artist like almost like your own child is—it's not really a detail, but it is kind of something that can get missed in the process. I think the only thing I would add is that um, I totally love that because we're in a very unique industry where the peep, the product is human beings, right? Like artists are the whole thing. Um, I think the other thing is we are. Sometimes people forget they get lost in the, the 2015 noise and they forget that we're also not in the marketing business, we're in the music business, right? And so when people ask me about like social media or all this stuff, like ultimately I'm like, that, write great music. Like that's focus all your time on great songs um, and your live performance or, you know, if you perform, that's the whole thing. Marketing is just stuff to help get that to other people. 
um, the, the, if you work on having great music that you're proud of, not like that somebody else is proud of, but that you truly love, um, then then it's all about how to get that to the people that will also like it. Um, it's it's the, the rest of it doesn't matter if you can focus on great music. Thank you. Oh, and we have to go uh, start going a little bit more quickly because it's almost bedtime. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Hi, my name is Adalia, and um, I've been scouted from like A&R Scouts from The Voice, and every time I go to the interview or something, they're like, we're not exactly what we're looking for for this season. Just like, what stands out to you guys? I mean, for me, um, there's confidence is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, talent, that's, that goes without saying. But I, I always say that, that an artist, a real artist can change the room. Um, without without doing anything, just walking in the room, there's a, there's a presence, there's a charisma, um, and a lot of that is confidence um, and believing in yourself. Because um, it's just it's just, it's it's, uh, it's obvious, and, and people see. I don't, I don't know how they do, but they they could see through the fake. They you know they see through the that there's something else there that you're not you know revealing. I think you know just. For me, when I, as soon as I meet an artist, it's it's I look for that confidence. I look I, and I look around um, the people that are with me to see how they're looking at the artist. You know, how, what's the reaction and how 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 it changes the whole energy of the room. Gotcha. And our last question for the night, Dan. Thank you. Um, last one. So I'm speaking on behalf of probably most of the independent artists in here and people in independent bands. It seems to me that there's four routes kind of starting off that you want to get. You want to get a manager, uh, tour agent, publishing label, right? You don't need them, but I'm just curious as to whether or not you think... And a lawyer. And a lawyer. If, if, sorry, sorry, Carl. Um, you think artists should be seeking these things in their beginning phases as independent bands, whatever they are? Or do you think they should just let them come to them? If it comes, it comes. If it doesn't, you just do your thing, you know? I don't, because you know, you don't want to like put a bad name out for yourself by pushing yourself on people, but at the same time. Well, if, if those people could legit help you, sure. But if I'm a very DIY guy, I would do it yeah. all myself until there's a need that it's like I have to go to this point and get XYZ. And I don't know if you guys have seen in the, in the industry lately, I feel like a lot of bands are foregoing management. Completely, and just hiring lawyers. Like you, at the end of the day, they can manage themselves and just have a, a, a lawyer, you know, take care of their contracting and stuff. And the, and the lawyers are a lot more nimble and aware of what's going on, um, you know, and, and maybe have an agent. I don't know if you listed agent for for booking shows, um, but I, I feel like a lot of it could just be done yourself and to uh, to a point where, or if that's your weak spot, you know, get some help there. But um, I don't. I always feel like there's never a magical angel like, oh, I got this, got this manager. We're going to the top. Like, you know, I, I, we work with tons of managers that have a great roster, and they like, well, I got this new band. Like, they don't have a magic, like, magic wand that they can hit that band. It's going to be the next so and so. You know, every management company has some duds on their roster. So, um, I, I don't know. I, I, for now, I would do it yourself. I think that's the right answer. I think it just depends on where you are, and you've got to be honest with yourself. Like. If people are trying to get you to sign things because you're doing well, then you probably it's time to get a lawyer. And if you're starting to get opportunities and it's becoming too much, then maybe you need a manager. Maybe you'll never need a manager. It depends on how motivated you are to do it all yourself. Um, I think you, the rest of it, right, do you need a label? Like All that stuff depends on where you're at in your own career. Um, I don't think there's an answer. I think there's like a, when you feel like the – world is more than you can handle, then you need some help. And then you have to figure out which kind of help you need. I would also add to that, uh, you can do a consultation with a lawyer and uh, they would probably diagnose things that need to be addressed. And thank you all for your questions. I think we should close the show out, Dr. Marconi. Don't yes, you I way. think we are too. And who's coming next week? Mm-hmm. Only kidding. <laughs> okay. So why don't we give a hand for each of them. So Josh Bernstein, give a big hand for Josh. Thank you for having me. Big hand for Big Paul Sinclair. Thanks for having me again. Big hand, large hands for Robert Fusari. Thank you. Thank you. 
Joanne Kelsey, big hand, publishing Wiz right over there. And the big man, Carl Guthrie, give him a big hand. We want to thank some people who are we. We had Jerry Lembo, music business consultant, who is here with us tonight. Give Jerry a hand, who uh, helped with the networking. Uh, we have Andy in Bergen County Community College. Andy, thank you for coming out today. We had George Dassinger, who is our public relations czar. He was here as well. And you guys all were here. So we want to thank you so much for attending Music Biz 101 and more live. And thank you to Mio for putting this whole event together. Good night!